We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land where we're recording. We pay respect to elders past, present Hello, and emerging and, welcome to, and the to all Indigenous peoples worldwide who are listening. These interviews chat to women in architecture and design to share the achievements, challenges and highlights that have shaped their lives and careers. Thanks to Anon for the beautiful introductory music. How lucky are we to have such lovely tunes to frame these conversations. In this next podcast episode, we chat to Shu West, a young emerging architectural designer, also based in Sydney, about life as a millennial and establishing yourself in the digital age. With a background in compassionate mental health care design, she's recently started her own practice and talks to us about how it all started out of her co-working space. I wouldn't say that my architecture or my design approach necessarily references modernism or this architecture or that architect. It's not so reductive like that. You can't just reduce everything down to the millennial. The audience and going back to getting work and things of Instagram, at the end of the day, Instagram audiences for people who aren't architects and so a lot of the images I post are very accessible like even to my friends and my partner it's sort of like if they're seduced by an image and they're not an architect then that's that's the aim you know (laughs) what great energy she has thanks you for your time today and thanks everyone for tuning in Um, thanks for having me, Bridget. Um, so my name is Shu, and at the beginning of the year, I decided to sort of start my own creative practice, having worked in the architecture profession for about six years and also having uh, five years in architecture school. And the reason why I decided to start doing my own thing was because I really needed the space to kind of come into my own as a designer and not always be working under somebody else's vision and also finding ways to be more collaborative um, without losing my own independence as a designer. Projects I picked up this year have been more small-scale design build projects that have been manageable on my own and having direct um, contact with my clients and direct collaboration with my clients has been really interesting for me as a stepping stone from having left an industry that was a lot more structured, I guess. And it's been quite a learning curve. Yeah, sure. And you mentioned you're in a co-working space. Yeah, that's right. My co-working, co-working space is called Vibe Wire, um, and it's, that's been really interesting as well because I'm the only sort of um, a self-employed person with a background in architecture and design in that space. So, uh, yes, yeah, and it's nice because um, I get to see a lot of other independent thinkers outside of industry. So, for example, my friend Elle is a graphic designer and I've got another friend, Stella, who's actually in geospatial mapping. And so it's been really good as a sort of uh, melting pot of independent designers and creatives. Yeah, that's so cool. What was it like growing up in New South Wales? So I actually came to Australia slash New South Wales when I was seven. um, And I was actually born in China, in south of China. So that in itself was a bit of a jump culturally. It's very different. The built environment between China and New South Wales or Australia is very different, obviously. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, and I actually grew up in Western Sydney, so which is interesting because uh, I live in inner city now. And I think growing up in Western Sydney um, as a migrant was really interesting because it showed um, a really multicultural demographic, which I didn't expect coming as a young child to what I perceived as a very white country um and it was interesting in western sydney there were a lot of refugees and migrants so i always felt that sense of diversity and culture growing up and that yeah. inclusivity um which i guess is starting for me in hindsight starting to shape my outlook as a designer because i think those growing up in that very cultural environment and going to school where you're learning about all these different cultures really does affect your outlook yeah And so how did you get into studying architecture in the first place? What was it about architecture that enticed you? Um, I think being really creative but not knowing what to do with that creativity and not knowing the limits to the scale of where that creativity gets um, outputted into. Um, Because, you know, when you're creative, people just tell you to do art and then yeah, and then going back to having an Asian parent saying, you know, you're not going to make money being an artist. Yeah. Um, and then going back and forth, um, architecture, because, and I think we'll talk about this later, but because architecture is still connected into industry and profession and there's a job outcome from that, that's kind of where it seemed good to kind of pursue my creative interest into the architecture field and then I like doing my research after high school so like looked at architecture school and architecture degree and it seemed to fit quite well into a lot of my creative passions yeah yeah and so where did you study architecture I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Sydney yeah and it was a very creative degree undergraduate I think I was on the tail end where it wasn't so um computer CAD base we were still doing a lot of things with charcoal and watercolor and it was still very sort of tactile and creative could you discuss a little bit about what led you to taking on your own projects and working in the mental health realm which I find so interesting what was that like and then how did that transition into taking on your own stuff yeah so for five years I was at a small practice called map architects and we were doing a lot of government projects that were master planning health facilities and with a lot of health facilities there's always a mental health component and so I learned so much from that firm just looking at typologies for well-being and how to design for mental health and that was a really good foundation for actually seeing the other side of architecture where architecture actually had a direct positive impact on the built environment from the viewpoint of well-being instead of just being functional or aesthetic it was actually about how people connected with the space and looking at that more psychological level of interaction with space on the side while I was working there I think I still had a lot of creative juices flowing from my um, undergraduate degree and so I kind of started seeking outlets for that and it's similar and you know you've got your podcast for the creative outlets so people doing publications and I kind of was trying to look for some of those things and I did do a few publications and pop-up exhibitions and then um, and then I also actually was spending a few days at the co-working space while I was um, in my full-time job because I needed to kind of come up with some creative projects for myself, kind of needing a studio space on the side sort of thing. And then while that was developing on the side, it kind of got to a point where people were noticing what I was doing and it was interesting. And then I had a few um, clients contact me to do, you know, a little office fit out or, you know, 
a project of that scale? And of course I said yes. And then it was kind of got to a point where it became harder to balance between having the full-time role and doing these creative projects on the side, especially when the creative project started paying my bills. Um, And then because I gave myself the space to do things that were quite experimental and really different from what I was doing in my day job, um, because in mental health, a lot of the things are practical and not design as in sort of not a formal exploration of architecture was more practical that I was kind of doing things in parallel. Um, and now that I'm doing my own practice, I'm definitely giving a lot more time and focus on the creative side of things while still trying to balance, um, the functionality of a brief and also having the approach of understanding how people are interacting with my designs and making sure that the scale of the scale of them, the material of them are still kind of coming from a place of understanding how people interact and, um, behave and live in in the space that you're designing basically. So in that five, in those five years when you were working on mental health projects, just to break it down a little bit and give some examples, what would have been, say, like what were some of the themes that you were dealing with and how did they translate into space? Yeah, so mental health is really complex and it varies between acuity. So we did anything from just a rehabilitation center for people who were recovering from, for example, alcohol addiction, all all the way to the other end of the acuity, which is people who have committed crimes and murder, the psychiatric side of things. Um, We did a project, actually, I probably can't talk about it because it's quite um, confidential, but it's... It's from those scales, so two extreme scales of it, and it all comes down to really natural things. So mental health facilities um, in about 30 years ago were still being, and now actually are still being designed as if they're jail cells because there's still that sort of panopticon idea of needing to monitor someone's behavior and needing to see, because they've got a mental health, you need to be monitoring them all the time. Um, whereas now a lot of the conversation shifting into mental health as being places for healing instead of, yeah, instead of monitoring, it's more about healing. And so the typology actually changed from being these long, narrow corridors that, that made, that made sure the staff could see into every room. And now it's a lot more open and it's actually a lot of courtyard um, typologies where the rooms are scattered around the courtyard and they will outlook into nature. And then the viewpoint of where the staff will be monitoring them is a lot more subtle and you don't feel like someone's breathing down your back. You're actually, the spaces that you're in for recovery are more connected to light and ventilation and and outlooks into nature. Um, And then the scale, a lot of the scales are very personal in mental health design. So it's very domestic scales where you feel like you're home. There might be a window seat. Um, Everything's a more personal scale. That is so interesting. And how did you, how did that affect you as a person thinking about those sorts of design concepts all the time? And you must have been visiting, I'm guessing, visiting facilities and meeting with people. And it's so amazing to hear that, yeah, there are changes that are being made, um, such as what you're, what you've been working on. But how was it? Did you find any challenges like working in that? Yeah, it's definitely confronting, but I think, I think it's kind of where I found my passion for architecture again um, yeah. because it is – and, well, actually one of the challenges is the 
um, the turnaround for some of these projects because there's so many stakeholders involved. You don't. Uh, we're doing a lot of master plans that were projected for ten or twenty years for for um, redesigning hospitals. Um, actually, and that's another interesting thing. Um, to talk about well-being and mental health in hospital design because a lot of the newer hospitals that are being designed now are designed more like hotels because yeah. health is such an important aspect of our lives and it's so disappointing to kind of go back to these mental health facilities and hospitals and just look at, you know, and how uninspiring and how um, just demotivating and depressing that they are and they don't feel like places for healing even though they should be. And that, again, comes down to architecture, like the space that's been designed, the building that's been that's been designed um, for the sense of healing and you don't see that at all with the existing um, state of things. Yeah. Is there much retrofitting of those existing facilities going on? Yeah. So some of the master plans we were looking at um, the were about expanding, refurbishing hospitals and they kind of get quite complicated when you think about staging a hospital and that's why master yeah. plans are yeah, and creating like a bigger vision for that redesign is really important. Actually, um, that also taught me that was a significant thing that I learned working in health facility master plan design, which was you need to have a big, broad vision before even understanding where a piece of building or an architect architecture would sit because a lot of bad design comes when someone just says we need a building and there's no bigger framework or plan or master plan for where that building actually sits and in health design it's similar yeah um because to refurb or move a hospital, you need to kind of understand areas where it could expand on site, on a campus scale. Um, and even with mental health facilities, it needs to be designed with the flexibility to expand and add on more wards, for example, without ruining, um, you know, like the access to the natural light and all of those things. Um, so it becomes quite complex in terms of the list of things you have to consider when you are um, planning for a mental health facility or planning to um, redesign design a hospital did that start to shape your your general outlook as if I'd say a fairly compassionate designer <laughs> that's the fun <laughs> work <laughs> compassionate designer maybe that could be my new title yeah. <laughs> um yeah I think I'm still developing a lot of these um ideas for how I feel architecture could address um society but um so I guess um, you know, segueing from the mental health stuff, like yeah. one way that I has really opened my eyes is that how architecture can impact um, on society in a really personal way in the sense of providing well-being. Um, and that's a lot in the – and health is very much in the public sector, even though there are private hospitals. Um, but now that I'm sort of doing projects on my own and finding how hard it is as a young independent designer to find projects and find work and find spaces where I could play and create, um, it's kind of come from another perspective of actually saying good design already exists and it's amazing, but there's a lot of people who can't actually – access that good design I mean how many people can afford to have an architect to design their house or yeah. how many people can afford an architect to, to do a really fancy fit out for their cafe it's sort of it's brought light to me how exclusive our profession is and how exclusive our design expertise is and I really enjoy being um, just an independent designer who my clients can call up and have very and have coffee with and have very 
um, a one-on-one session that's a lot more personal and easy and less confronting than, for example, um, needing to work with a huge firm on a small project. Um, and also I've been having conversations about, um, underutilized spaces in the city or in different areas of council within New South Wales and just looking at how connecting that's those design solutions with underutilized spaces and understanding some of those connections and how architecture can input in basically reinvigorating or activating underutilized spaces while at the same time making those spaces available to a wider audience or a more general public. So making all of those things more equal. Following on from that and thinking about how you're meeting with people, um, how are you finding work? Like apart from the stuff that's happened organically, like have you found stuff like Instagram or um, I don't know sort of stuff that's specific to modern times or um, perhaps your generation that's like assisting you to grow your to grow your work yeah I think they're all really interesting ideas because I think the word you use in one of the questions you sent over was millennial and the Instagram culture really fits into that in the way that we're connecting and talking with people Um, a lot of projects that I've had currently are Basically, um, how do I describe it? So my first proper client that allowed me to do independent work was actually somebody who was on the board of the co-working space, um, which is a not-for-profit youth-led co-working community. And I think just being in that environment and engaging with people who are involved with similar things um, really kind of like brought me down this path. And I don't know whether it was like just the universe, like continuing from all the mental health stuff, but then my second project was with another social enterprise and I had to learn about what's social enterprise actually meant, um, which is basically a profitable business that is actually doing social good, which is a sidetracking a little bit from the conversation, but it's just, I think the idea of as soon as you work with one community and not just with one client, but when your client is actually an extended community, then you just have a better chance of talking to more people, I guess. What would be an example um, of a project that you're working on at the moment? Um, so Darcy Street Project is one of my recent clients and we've got two spaces that we're working with them on. And so they basically provide barista training to unemployed youth or disengaged youth as well. So they hire a lot of people who've come out of homelessness um, or recently incarcerated youth. And it's really interesting. So they're empowering through barista training and serving coffee, basically. And so they've got a coffee shop in Parramatta that we just did a fit out for. And now they've got a space in Moorbank, which is a warehouse that we want to turn into a sort of community kitchen, event space, slash, um, but with coffee culture at the core of the um, project. And yeah, and they've got a community of... Um, um, well, they've got a really extended community, but they've got a small team who's been really interesting to work with. And because they're a social enterprise, they tap a lot into council initiatives and council projects. And so on our project in Moorbank, I actually got to sit down with two of the business liaison officers from Liverpool Council and have an extended conversation with them about what other social initiatives are happening in council, what spaces they're making available, the potential to collaborate with Darcy Street Project as my clients. And me being able to have that conversation was really interesting because I was having a chat with them about the functional brief of the project and seeing how we can incorporate more community briefs into the warehouse site. So, for example, having event spaces or spaces that people can do a talk, um, hire out to do a talk or an event. Um, And so that was really interesting. What are some of your values as a designer that you're sort of trying to or that you're uncovering as you work on like a project like that? Yeah, I think 
Uh, there's so many things, um, but I think my main values would be around the equality of design and just about not just finding private clients who have money to hire me, but actually going out of my way to create opportunities for um, either younger designers or for clients who might not have a big budget, but have a vision and a passion and a community behind them. Sort of, yeah, I think just making myself available and open to those opportunities and making it less about me and my, and pushing my own design agenda, but actually taking a step back and looking at all the things happening around me and seeing how I can actually contribute or collaborate and add positive positively to some of those um, initiatives happening around me. Where would you like to see your, your work growing into? Um, it's a little bit organic at the moment, but I would love to kind of keep going with the social agenda that I've sort of started on and have learned from being able to work with social impact and social enterprise clients. Um, but also for me, it's just the organic balance of having this creative discipline of architecture, but also trying to navigate the profession. But it is sort of just learning how to be a professional in architecture, yeah. but also being a creative in architecture and how those things kind of relate and also developing my own expertise because I'm still young, yeah. not ready yet. I still have so much to learn and develop, but just yeah. giving myself the space to do that and finding clients who have the vision and the space to allow me to do that as well. I know a lot of people um, who look young, regardless of their age, <laughs> feel that, and you are young as well. Um, how does that? How has that affected you in terms of like your professionalism, and how are you stepping into that? It's definitely jumping into the deep end of it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, um, I think it's sort of just the way you carry yourself and just talking about the things that you're confident in. And I think that's why um, I have a lot of clients who trust me because it is building those client relationships. And we don't always talk about architecture and boring things like that. It's yeah. about connecting with people on a human level and having them see and believe in you as a person. Um, obviously, people are hiring me for a certain skill set you know they need abc done but what they'll get on top of that is someone that they can really trust and it's for me it's really been learning about those client relationships and building that trust and even in meetings and things like that like if i've got a design that i'm i've gone through and thought about um and considered it's not hard to present a design and being and having that passion behind you people can really see and relate to that so it's not really um it's not a lot of professional skills that I've been learning. It's actually a lot of personal skills. So would you say as one part of it, you're approaching it through your passion for design and um, conveying that through like how you're presenting your work or the way that you're talking about it? Yeah, definitely. I think you put that really well. And my Instagram account is a lot of bright, catchy things that are not necessarily technical drawings that I go through with a builder or client, but they're yeah. images that I make that inspire me or capture a little design vision or a little design moment that inspires me and my clients. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and it, it is exploring how you convey your own design aesthetic or your design approach in ways that are attractive. And I think Instagram is something 
that's suited for that. It is like the seduction of the vision of design and architecture. It has become this shared resource. Um, Such a new word as well, millennial, and I get caught out about it. I wouldn't say that my architecture or my design approach necessarily references modernism or this architecture or that architecture. It's not particularly um, referential. It is very poppy and I guess millennial as a sort of um, simple, um, happy aesthetic or something. Um, you know, like millennial pink and like everything's really glossy and pretty, but it's like, but it's, that doesn't, it, it's not so reductive like that. You can't just reduce everything down to decide you're the millennial. <laughs> the audience and going back to getting work and things of Instagram, at the end of the day, Instagram audience is for people who aren't architects. And so a lot of the images I post are very accessible, like even to my friends and my partner, it's sort of like, if they're seduced by an image and they're not an architect, then that's that's the aim, you know? <laughs> it's great to hear that you're directing outwards to the audience who would be employing you. Um, are there any sort of other ways or anything that you've been thinking about in that kind of area to, like, reach out? Yeah, and it really did start with being in that co-working space where there was such a mixed pot of different um, skills and backgrounds. And yeah. everyone has an interest in everything else it's sort of when you talk to somebody else outside of the industry they are so engaged and so supportive about what you do and so it's really just like it's again like projecting that passion to other people um and having that reciprocated a lot easier when they're not in the architecture profession having just like perfect ideal of what architecture is um when, people, when you can make people curious about what architecture is outside of architecture, I think yeah. that becomes a really interesting conversation. And, yeah, and not being afraid to kind of talk to people from council when you've got a project in the area or reaching out to see who are the key players who could actually collaborate and make your project better who aren't architects because there's so much involved in getting a space happening um, that you don't it's not just up to the architects necessarily. There's such a network of people that make things happen. I mean, you just sound so passionate when you're talking. Architecture can be, I love architecture. I love what I do, but haven't seen building projects go from start to finish. I mean, stuff happens. <laughs> and if I were to hire an architect, I'd want to be hiring someone who, who is passionate, actually knowing that this person really is going to see your project through or is going to go away and think about a design that it's they're going to be really feeling strongly about and they would have considered it. I think that maybe as well that's something that emerging designers have as an advantage um, over established practices who, um, I mean, I'm sure many of them are really great and pumping out excellent work no matter what the project is. But yeah. um, if I was hiring an architect, you do, I would think, oh, you do run the risk that maybe this project isn't going to be at the top of their list um, depending where you who you hire um, so that's pretty cool it sounds like your passion would come be coming across into the discussions yeah it's pretty it's, I'm so excited for you <laughs> um, but yeah it's the business development side which is always really hard because when you're one person or even maybe two people and you've got your head down working on the project you can't actually put time aside to do business development um, to kind of bring on more work it's a whole other thing yeah yeah um, you must. do you find you have to be really careful with your time 
Yeah, I'm learning how to juggle it, but I, I've been having coffee with a lot of um, young emerging registered architects who've just kind of started their own firm and um, Melinda Howard from Kaleidoscope. Um, yes. who, have you been in contact with her? Because I would totally nominate her to do an interview with you. <laughs> and she's one of those, and I think being contacting young people and just asking them for a coffee, like she was so receptive and so amazing and our conversation was so open. She said she shares so much with me of just her struggles and things and giving me advice. And she was just so open and sharing. And she told me that she actually sets aside one day a week to do that sort of marketing business development side. And I was thinking, I need that structure. (laughs) Yes. Are there any other architecture firms that you really look up to or any, um, yeah, like any architects that you've really been inspired by, like whilst studying or in your early days of working? Um, I actually did write down two architects um, who I thought were very interesting and I wanted to start with the reference point of Zaha and I know so she gets referenced so many times but I wanted to bring her into the conversation because when I was doing my undergraduate degree which is in 2010 or something oh my god that's so long ago um, but <laughs> Yeah, she was a, when she was brought up, it was sort of like, wow, like look at the potential of architecture as a creative form and just the things she was exploring and challenging and, you know, um, all the, all the things that flowed and challenging what a wall was and an opening was, it was sort of just breaking down and expanding what architecture was as a form. Um, and that was really liberating as an undergraduate degree to see that sort of extreme creative side of architecture. Um, and then to sort of kind of jump from that point of reference, um, an architect that I've been looking at a lot is Julie Eisenberg, who actually studied at the University of Melbourne. Sure, if you've heard of her, but it's Koning Eisenberg Architecture, and they're actually now based in the States, in Santa Monica. Um, and she works a lot with, she was actually here at the Student Architecture Congress two years ago in Sydney doing a bit of a talk for the Congress. Um, but she talks a lot about connecting between the private and public sectors. And when she does a talk, she'll have 200 slides of just beautiful photography of the architecture she's done, but she'll just flick through them because what she likes to talk about more is actually how she got those projects, um, how she managed to negotiate between the private and public sectors to push more social housing or affordable housing and to push that social agenda while having a lot of private clients and mm. so to reference of Zaha sort of it when Zaha was a star architect or whatever in that generation architecture was this beautiful object or the end goal that everyone sort of was on a pedestal and I think the last podcast I listened to that you interviewed you were talking about how um or the person you were interviewing was talking about how architecture is sometimes on this pedestal but now that a lot of young people are seeing a lot of issues with in society and all of the challenges they're facing today. It is a lot about how architecture becomes a negotiation within a more social fabric. And it's not the end object that we're designing anymore. It's actually the process to get to something that is iconic or something that is beautiful and creative. It's sort of that whole part of getting to that point is now as much of the focus as the end result. Mm, um, so those are the two architects that I've been really interested just looking at. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, yeah. Cool. This has been such a fun chat. Thanks for I'm spending your afternoon with me. <laughs> Thank you, Shu, for your time. It was great to catch you at this exciting stage in your career. Next episode, we'll be chatting to Rati Mahachi 
an interior designer who's been rather interested in squatting in Zimbabwe. If you would like to listen in, please do. So he rents out offices in this big um, commercial building, but yeah. right behind that, there were squatters, and I think they used to be just like about 500, like five years ago, and have significantly increased to like 5,000. This urbanization that's happening in Harare, people right. come from all these different places to like look for um, opportunities, and they don't really have anywhere to stay, so they just mm-hmm. look for any empty, um, empty land. 